today's sermon is called Contagious Kindness. Contagious Kindness. Now, lots of things in life are contagious, not just kindness. For example, um, grumpiness is also very, very contagious. Negativity and positivity are contagious, I think, in equal measures. And during this Christmas season, um, some people are very happy. They love Christmas. It's like the best time of year for them. And for others, it's also just a really horrible time because everyone is stressed, trying to finish projects at work, rushing to get their Christmas shopping done. There's traffic. I was driving on Thursday. Thursday is my day off, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to get some Christmas shopping done. And I had a few shops I was going to, and everybody on the road was angry, cutting each other off, honking. You know, there were queues. I went to Costco to buy some things, and I was in queue for about 30 minutes just trying to get through um, to pay for the, for the things I was buying. And so this time of year can really um, create a lot of different kinds of uh, contagion. Kindness is one option, but grumpiness and gossip and tensions and all that can also build as pressures build. So the question I have for us today is, how can we choose kindness over the chaos? How can we choose grace over the gossip? How can we choose to be Christ-like over the natural, cultural, selfish tendency of whinging, right? How can we make those choices? And how can we, um, yeah, experience the healing and the rest, the peace that Christ brings to us, and, and that's Christmas is supposed to celebrate. I want to look at a story um, in the book of Acts, and I'll grab Acts chapter 28, and if you have your white Bibles in front of you, it is page 902. So Acts chapter 28, page 902. And I'll give you a little bit of context. One of the first Christian missionaries um, in the first century was a man named Paul. And because of his uh, zeal for Christianity, because he went around talking about Jesus, he was arrested several times. And this is towards the end of his life. He's arrested and he's actually taken on a ship and they're sailing to Rome. And God tells Paul in a vision and a dream that um, there's going to be a huge storm and that they're going to, uh, you know, be shipwrecked, but that God tells him it's going to be okay. Everyone is going to be safe. I'm going to keep them safe. And so, indeed, there's a storm, and Paul is able to tell everyone, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Um, and, in fact, everybody makes it. They, they swim to the shore. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 28. Uh, this is Luke who's narrating the story who was um, accompanying Paul. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. All right, so here's, you know, who knows how many people. It could have been, you know, 40, could have been 100, maybe more swim to shore, get to this island. And I don't know about you, but if, you know, a bunch of strangers came onto my shores and I, you know, it's my village, it's my um, town, I, I would be a little bit wary, put up border control, you know, pet, uh, vets everyone that comes through, make sure they don't have a criminal 
history. Well, it turns out that because the ship has prisoners, right? Not everyone is like Paul. Some people are in prison for being murderers. Um, th- these are these are people that you know you would normally be very wary of. But instead, we see that the uh, people of of Malta are extremely hospitable, right? Regardless of their background, regardless of their history, they welcome them on shore. They build fires so that they can warm up because they're all soaked to the skin for having swam there. Very kind people. So then when Paul gets bitten by a snake, you would kind of think they're so kind that they would immediately rush to Paul's aid to help him, right? Take him, take him to their local healer, you know, make sure he's all right, at, le- at least comfort him in his dying hours. But here's actually what the Bible says happens next. The people of the island saw the snake hanging from his hand and said to each other, a murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. And the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. I just find it so interesting that these kind people, right, capable of so much goodness and hospitality, uh, hospitality, sorry, made up a word there, hospitality, as soon as Paul gets bitten, they all change their attitude to one of, did you see that, right? And instead of helping him, hey, let's take you to the healer. Hey, are you all right? Can we get you anything, right? Now they're just watching and waiting for him to die, right? They're, they're kind of standing around, talking to each other, gossiping about this man in his potentially last few dying minutes of agony. You know, I, I would imagine that a venomous bite would be very painful, but they're not offering any help. And then after waiting a long time, so like for a long time, they're all standing around gossiping, staring at him. And then they finally decide, what? He's not dead. He must be a god, right? People's, um, people have very capricious whims. Paul is not phased by any of this and calmly goes on doing what he does, which is being kind and being a friend to those in need. Because we read on and we find out that near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. And as a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. How did Paul know that Publius's father was sick? I imagine that Paul, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us all the things between the lines. You've got to kind of stop and reflect and think. And I imagine that the reason why Paul even knew about Publius's father was that he was someone who listened, someone who observed, someone who had learned from Jesus the science of being kind, of being there for others. And I imagine that he asked Publius, how are you? And thank you for your kindness. And through that conversation, found out oh, his father was sick. So then Paul says, well, let me help, right? And he goes in and he prays for him and he lays hands on him. This man is dysentery, right? He's contagious. And there's Paul laying hands on him, praying for him and healing him. And then, of course, all the sick people on the island come and Paul freely serves them all. And, of course, God is the one who healed through, through Paul. But Paul was a channel of that healing. As a result of Paul's kindness, the people, the community, 
are kind in return, not only to Paul, but the whole, you know, crew and all the people who were on the ship. They bring them all the supplies. It doesn't say how long they were there, but I would imagine because their ship was completely destroyed, they either had to wait for a new ship to come or they had to build a new one or, um, you know, take one that they had and adjust it. So it would have been days, weeks for them to um, house and accommodate and feed all these people. But the community was willing to do it because of the kindness of Paul. It's kind of like this merry-go-round of, of, of contagious kindness where one person is kind, the other person is kind, and everyone is able to experience the blessing. This story in Acts reminds me of another story, um, one from another community of islanders from more recent times. On September 11, 2001, when the terrorist attacks um, closed down the U.S. airspace for the first time in history, Hundreds of planes had to be diverted elsewhere. Well, 38 of those planes, carrying 6,579 passengers from 92 countries, were diverted to a small town in Newfoundland, Canada, named Gander. Gander had 9,651 residents and four traffic lights. One police constable, one reporter. A tiny little uh, community. Um... So can you imagine they're, they're, you know, getting the news that they're going to have about 7,000 guests. And with, as soon as they get this news, um, and, and the people on the plane had to sit on the tarmac for hours, some for 28 hours, um, waiting for news. They don't know what's happening. They haven't been told that there has been a terrorist attack. Everyone is just on the plane going crazy. Meanwhile, everyone in the town of Gander are extremely busy mobilizing to accommodate these 7,000 people. They turned all the churches, community halls, and schools into dormitories and shelters. And so this one reporter, first day on the job, um, is, is telling people, hey, we need X, Y, and Z. You know, we need toilet paper. And people just started pouring in the shops just opened up their shops and said, take whatever you need. Hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of toothbrushes, um, you know, feminine products, nappies, cl- you know, clothes, whatever they needed. They just, he, they said, just take them all. People started donating. Um, the reporter in the morning around 9 a.m. said, we need toilet paper to be brought to Gander Academy. By 7 p.m., he had to go back on air and say, for the love of God, stop bringing toilet paper to the Kander Academy. And apparently, even after um, all this happened, they had enough toilet paper to last a year at that academy because of the generosity of the people coming in. People started cooking, and they had so much food that they were like, where are we going to put all this food? We don't have enough fridges, and we have to keep the food you know, uh, okay. And so they actually t- um, took all the food to the nearby hockey rink, and it became the largest refrigerator in North America. Um, the entire hockey rink was just full of casseroles and, and all kinds of food. Um, the bus drivers, school bus drivers had been on strike, you know, but they all came back to volunteer to drive the 7,000 passengers to wherever they needed to go. People donated clothes. Um, people donated uh, sleeping bags, mattresses, whatever was needed. At the local Walmart, Walmart, the message from the greeters changed to, welcome to Walmart, would you like to come and take a shower at my house? Um, and all these, they just opened up their homes and said, do you want to come and stay at my house? 
the the 7000 guests you know when they first arrived were so confused and exhausted and scared they're trying to contact their family members um and so you know but this is 2001 when there weren't as many mobile phones um and so what the community did they they donated all their mobile phone and this is back when every minute was super expensive and they just said use our phones um they brought all the computers they could to wherever the people were so that people could email or 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 work or do whatever they needed on the on the computers the locals put on karaoke nights took the passengers hiking boating fishing gaming whatever they could to to show them hospitality to to help them um take their minds off of what was happening on the last day, for example, the local police constable heard that um, there had been a plane. One of the 38 planes was a Make-A-Wish Foundation plane full of sick, terminally ill children who are supposed to go to Disneyland for their wish come true. And now they're in Gander, Canada. And so they um, they put on this whole parade for them and took the kids on hay rides and all kinds of fun things. And also two of the girls, it was their birthday. And so the police constable heard this and organized a birthday party for all 350 people on that plane. The local co-op shop baked a five-meter-long cake. Stores donated gifts. And since the birthday girls had most wanted to meet Snow White and Cinderella, some of the young ladies found old Halloween costumes of princesses, and they made wands and tiaras. And they, just, the whole town just did everything they could to make the visitors feel special. When the visitors finally were told that they could get back on their planes, thousands of tearful goodbyes took place. One Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer took it upon himself to farewell everyone publicly by standing in his full Mountie regalia, standing at full attention for the hours it took for 7,000 people to get on their planes again. And one t- blind teenage girl from Germany, she and her mother um, you know, were passing by, and she wanted to say goodbye, and so she you know, fingered her way around the curved brim of the hat and over all the uniform and all the buttons and the black leather riding boots. And her mother said, I want you to know what kindness feels like. None of the people of Degander would accept any money for anything. Despite donating thousands of dollars worth of supplies, Food, housing, clothes, medication. Pharmacies just opened and said, well, take whatever medication you need. Um, mobile phone company in that, um, in that town just donated tons of things. Despite all that they've spent, and, and you know, five days they were there, and the, the townspeople pretty much didn't sleep for five days just making sure that the guests were accommodated for. When, when, the, when the plane people leaving tried to give them money, tried to do something, the townspeople said, you would have done the same for us you would have done the same for us. But the truth was, not everybody would have done the same. And, and the people on the plane knew that very well. They knew that the people here are very special. So one of the guests decided to make a donation box, and so people just started stuffing whatever currency they had in there. And when the currencies were all exchanged, over $60,000 were donated back to this community. The Rockefeller founder. Rockefeller Foundation had been deplaned there, and they had been using the school's old computer lab to work. So after they went back um, home, they donated $85,000 worth of new computers for the academies. One of the plane passengers on his flight home got on the you know, intercom, you know, asked the flight attendant, can I borrow your intercom, and said, hey, I'm going to pass around a hat. Let's start, 
start a scholarship fund for the children of this town. So he passed the hat around, and people pledged initially $15,000, which later grew to be $2 million scholarship for this community. And so over 200 students in Newfoundland um, were able to attend university for free. One of the plain people named Kevin Turf had grown up in a Christian home but was thinking about abandoning his religion and was kind of wondering of whether he just even believed in God at all. But after experiencing the love and the hospitality of Gander, um, he renewed his spirituality. And in fact, while he was there for five days, there was a song that kept coming into his mind. And he, he was like, what is that song? What is that song? And he finally remembered it. It's a song. It's actually a poem, a prayer by St. Francis. And I've got some of it on the screen. I'll read it for you. The song goes, make me a channel of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Where there is injury, your pardon, Lord. And where there is doubt, true faith in you. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there is sadness, ever joy. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace. It is pardoning that we are pardoned, in giving to all men that we receive, and in dying that we're born to eternal life. O Master, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to be understand, to be loved as to love with all my soul. Make me a channel of your peace. Where there is despair in life, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And where there is sadness, ever joy. This song and the people of Gander inspired Kevin to return not only to his spiritual um, relationship with God, but also he started um, nonprofit organizations to pay it forward. And so he was a CEO, and um, every year on 9-11, he gives all his employees $100. And he says, I want you, he tells them the story of Gander, and he says, I want you to go and show kindness. And the next day, they all get together and share stories of what they experienced. He also started um, um, fundraising to help Syrian refugees um, to be able to, to find a home in America. And in fact, after 10 years, there was a 10-year anniversary in Gander where, where the plain people were invited back. And at that 10-year at that, um, reunion, he found out that, of course, Gander invited these Syrian refugees into their homes and, and were taking care of them. He's written a book called The Channel of Peace based on that song that ran through his mind while during the five days he was in Gander. And the proceeds from this book go towards Syrian refugees. The story of Gander's generosity and kindness ins eventually inspired uh, Michael Rubinoff, who was a, who's a theater buff and a lawyer from Toronto, um, to write and invite two uh, playwrights to visit Gander and write a musical. And so David Hine and Irene Sankoff, who are Canadians who were actually studying in New York on 9-11, went to visit Gander on the 10th anniversary, and they stayed for a month interviewing everyone. They had 16,000 stories of, of what had happened. And from those true stories, they created the musical Come From Away, which has um, been on Broadway. It's been in Seattle, London. It's currently playing here in Melbourne. Um, and I cried the whole time <laughs> watching it. Um, it's, it's won a Tony in 2017. It's, it's truly... It's, it's, it's funny, it's touching, um, and it's all based on true stories. Um, and, you know, 
it's so interesting because the townspeople at Gander, they don't think they did anything special. They say they're just ordinary people doing what anyone would have done. And they say, it's the new few way. If you have a slice of bread and your neighbor doesn't, you give half and you eat half. And their definition of neighbor, of course, is anyone and everyone. No matter what the 92 countries people came from, those 7,000 people, they treated them all with kindness and with respect. And this is what Jesus demonstrated when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me refresh your mind of this story, or maybe you've never heard it before. One day, an expert in religion, uh, religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, Do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Right? And Jesus goes on to say, uh, a Jewish man was walking, was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, who was the enemies of the Jews, came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which, of, which one of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked? And the man replied, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. This holiday season, we're rushing here and there, stressing over this and that. Could we be passing by someone in need? Someone who's lonely this Christmas, who might need an invite on Christmas Day. Someone who has experienced loss this year, who needs some extra love and understanding and compassion. How can we choose kindness instead of stress? How can we choose grace, giving people the benefit of doubt, forgiving instead of resenting? Dr. Brene Brown, um, who I've shared about before, she has written a new book. She's um, a writer and a researcher. She's been featured in multiple TED Talks. Five of her books have been number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And now she's got a new book, which will probably be number one again, called Dare to Lead. And it's about um, leadership. Um, and she talks about how uh, there's an, a slogan from an Alcoholics Anonymous uh, meeting that she heard one day. And it says, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Clear is kind, unclear is un unkind. And she goes to explain that most of us, we avoid clarity because we think we're being kind. In other words, if someone does something you don't like, you're like, well, I don't want to make it awkward. I don't want to tell them, especially with leadership, she was saying, you know, bosses, for example, they don't want to, you know, give, tell, tell the employees exactly what, um, how they feel or what, what they want. And so she was saying that a lot of us avoid clarity because we think we're being kind, but actually that is actually very unkind and unfair, 
unfair. For example, she says, feeding people half-truths or lies to make them feel better is unkind because it's almost always about making ourselves feel more comfortable. She says, not getting clear with a colleague or family member or friend about expectations because it feels too hard, and yet holding them accountable or blaming or resenting them when they don't deliver is unkind. Talking about people rather than to them is unkind. And she says, responding by, to a difficult conversation by saying, oh, got it, and running away instead of rumbling, she calls it, right? Just say, let's just say, let's get ready to rumble and just go into it with an open heart, open mind. Um, she says, running away and just not addressing this situation is unkind. So she gives us four points. And she says, look, we fear being uncomfortable. We fear being uncomfortable. But that self-protection is actually harmful to us and to the other individual. It breeds resentment, gossip, misunderstanding, and mistrust. So the first way that we can be kind to change the culture of our workplace, our family, our church, is to have the courage to be honest. To have the courage to be honest. Honest with ourselves so that we know how we actually feel. Honest with the other person and honest with God. Dr. Brene Brown has done research about shame and about courage and about um, you know, mental wellness for, for over a decade. And she says that one of the most shocking things that she's discovered is that the most compassionate and the kindest people she had ever interviewed over the 13 years were the most what she calls boundary people. In other words, individuals who didn't just say, oh, yeah, any, you know, it's okay, do whatever you want, right? You know, anything goes. Not, not that, but people who actually had clear boundaries. This is okay, and this is not okay. People who um, had the courage to ask for what they needed could say no when they needed to, and when they said yes, they meant it. People who weren't worried about disappointing others or making everyone like them. People who had clear boundaries and had security about asking for those boundaries to be respected. And she says these people were actually the kindest and most compassionate people in the end. Being honest means having the courage to have difficult conversations about expectations and needs as well as opening up about our feelings. That if someone has hurt us to say, hey, that actually hurt me. This is, this is how it made me feel. And if we have hurt others to go to them and say, hey, I think I, think I said something really stupid the other day and, I, and I'm really sorry. It means being honest with God as well in prayer to actually say to God, hey, God, this is actually how I'm feeling right now. And this is, this is what I'm going through. So that in that honest place um, of frustration or anger or whatever it is that we're feeling, that we actually open that space up for God to heal us and to help us identify the areas that we need to surrender to him. So the first way to be kind is to be honest. The second way is to give people the benefit of doubt. Dr. Brene Brown says that this was also something that kind of changed her mentality. She said she used to be so upset with her employees, you know, because um, they didn't do what she wanted them to do. And then, but and yet she was not able to really have that conversation with them and she resented them and, you know, kind of kept going. And um, her husband and she were doing some research and they, and they wondered this question, are people doing the best they can? Are people doing the best they can? And her husband said, let me think about that, and came back to her um, with an answer after he had thought about it. And he said, I don't know if people are doing the best they can, but if I believe they are, 
if I believe that they are, I feel a lot better. <laughs> and she said it really changed her mentality to give people the benefit of the doubt and believe people are doing the best they can. Right? And if you think about it, none of us knows exactly what the other person is going through. There are people who, um, as I've gotten to know them, I found out that they're suffering through such difficult things. Um, there's one of my, uh, I was dropping Mike off at school the other day and ran into one of his friend's moms and she's always so cheerful, always so you know friendly. And um, I was asking her, oh, where are you off to now? And she said, oh, I'm taking my dad to the hospital. And I asked, oh, is he all right? And what happened? And she said, oh, he's terminally ill and he's going to die soon. And she kind of choked up. And, and I just thought, you know, all this year, I've been seeing her every week on school, drop off, hey, how are you? And it's always so happy not knowing that she's got this big pain in her heart that she's carrying, and she's caring for her dying father. We don't know what each other are going through. And we don't also know what each other's um, backgrounds are. I remember, I remember, for example, you know, when, when Roy and I were dating, um, you know, I grew up with my sister and my mom and my dad. Like, we communicated about everything. I should text my sister, like, this is what I ate for breakfast. What did you have? You know, like, we, we just communicated about everything. And I was dating this guy who I, who I really respected. But, like, and, we, and, and he was on the West Coast. I was on the East Coast. And we were supposed to talk at 9 o'clock at night and um, every day. And, you know, the morning would go by, the afternoon go by, and it's almost 9 o'clock. And I'm thinking, he hasn't messaged me all day. He's not thinking about me. He doesn't love me, right? And and when so nine o'clock comes around and he, you know, we call and I'm like, Do you miss me? And he's like, What? Where is this coming from? You know? And, you know, I just genuinely was like, Why what why, why doesn't he talk to me all day long? Um, and he's thinking, Why is she so needy? Right? And so when when we um when we had our premarital counseling, one of the things that came out in that in that was they were asking us about our family backgrounds, etc. And then I realized, as Roy was sharing, he grew up, because his mother passed away when he was uh, 13, so he grew up with his brother, who's seven years older than him, and his dad. And the three of them never have a meal together. They just all do their separate things. They live their separate lives. You know, they don't know when the other person is out of the country. You know, they, they, um, they hardly celebrate each other's birthdays, like Roy's dad forgets Roy's birthday every other year. Um, and so they just are not used to communicating. And Roy was telling the counselor, he said, I made it a point, he said, my parents never went on a date. He said, I made it a point that when I was dating Jin Han, that I was going to dedicate every day, 9 o'clock, to her. And that, you know, he was like, I made that commitment. And that's when I realized, wow, I am used to this, so I'm expecting that. He's used to this, but he's giving me so much more than he's ever known. And when I realized that he was giving so much above and beyond his own experience, his own kind of norm, right, I appreciated then what he was able to give. And so it changes our attitude. So I went from kind of like resenting and insecurity, like, do you care? To, wow, like, he really cares for me. And, you know, he's really special. And so if we assume that people are doing the best they can based on their education, based on the information they have, based on their background, based on what, they're, what they grew up with, their upbringing, um, even what they're going through currently that we don't know about, right? If we assume that people are doing the best they can, it will change our attitude to one of resentment, to one of kindness, right? to one of grace. And if you think about what Jesus did when he was here on earth, he knew everything. And he knew the hearts of everyone. And yet he treated 
Judas, whom he knew would betray him, right? He treated him with grace, treated him the same as everybody else. And he tried to appeal to him throughout his three and a half years of ministry because he gave Judas the benefit of the doubt. Even though he had the clarity of vision, he still gave him the benefit of the doubt. God says, don't judge others who have a speck in their eye when you have a plank in yours. He says, give people the benefit of the doubt. Third way that we can be kind is to ask for and accept help. Quoting Dr. Brene Brown again, she says, until we receive, until we can receive with an open heart, we are never really giving with an open heart. When we attach judgment to receiving help, we knowingly or unknowingly attach judgment to giving help. In our culture, we've come to equate success with not needing anyone. Many of us are willing to extend a helping hand, but we're very reluctant to reach out for help when we need it ourselves. It's as if we've divided the world into those who offer help and those who need help. The truth is that we are both. In order to experience real connection, we need to experience both giving and receiving. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting because uh, I, I've told this story to a few of you, but when Roy proposed to me, um, we were kind of actually almost at a point where we, were, we thought about breaking up. It was just, oh, the relationship was so difficult because we're just very different. We think differently. We we process the world differently. And so, and we were, it was long distance. We were struggling. We're like, is this not, not going to work? So we were almost at the point of breaking up. And then what did Roy do? He went and studied the book of Romans. <laughs> we're such like pastor nerds. So he went and he studied the book of Romans. And while he was reading the book of Romans, the book of Romans talks about God's grace and about accepting God's grace. And while he was studying theology, he had this epiphany. He was like, you know what? He's like, it's not because, because he, you know, the problem that we were having is that we both loved each other and we both tried to show each other love, but it wasn't coming through. Like somewhere it got twisted and then the other person didn't, didn't, we have different love languages. And so it didn't come across as love. And so as he was reading uh, Romans, he realized, you know what? You have to learn to accept the way that it is given and it's in accepting well that you actually love well. And so when he had this epiphany, he, he then came to the conclusion, like, I want to marry this woman, right? So he flew over, and, and I didn't know that he was flying over. He broke into my apartment, and he, um, he, uh, he set up these cards along the staircase up to uh, a townhouse, um, the second floor. And he set up these cards along the way. So when I got home from a board meeting, I opened the door, and there were these flowers and I was like, what? And I saw Roy's laptop, so then I was supposed to apparently watch the video that was on the laptop, but I got so excited that I skipped all that. And I ran, and then I got stopped. He said, he was upstairs, and he heard me go, stopped, read the first card. And then, stopped, read the second card. And along each card had, he was explaining the journey of our relationship. And in one of the cards, he's talking about the Book of Romans, and telling me about how he learned that you have to learn to accept in order to love well. That loving well is not just about loving the other person this way, but it's about learning how to accept this way as well. And that epiphany helped him completely change. Like, he, he was night and day. Like, the Roy that I was dating before that point and the Roy that I knew after that point was completely different. The way that we interacted, um, the way that things just became so much easier and how we communicated and how we were able to just show each other love. And so 
it completely changes our attitude and our actions and how we interact with others when we actually ask and accept for help. It's not just about being kind to others. It's actually kind to accept kindness from others, right? Because pride prevents us from saying, I, I need your prayers or I need your help. Come help me. And I have absolutely no pride. As you know, I've asked all of you for help with my children, for example. I think a lot of you have babysat my children at some time or the other, you know, or have cooked for me or have given me hugs because I'm an emotional mess sometimes, right? And so, um, like today, I am a little bit. But um, it's so important to ask for help because that's where you build real connections, right? The reason why we're able to be friends is because we can let go of that mask of I'm all good, but just say, I'm not good, right? And, and say, I need, I need your support. And having that vulnerability and that transparency is actually what is being kind to others because you're letting them in to your heart and your life. The fourth way that we can be kind to ourselves, or to be kind to others, is actually to be kind to yourself, to take care of yourself. Um, in, in the book, The Kindness Cure by Dr. Tara Cusino, she says, stress is often what gets in the way of kindness. Stress is often what gets in the way of kindness. That priest's assistant and, and that Levite, you know, the priest and the Levite who passed by the, good, the injured man on the road to Jericho, they might have been the kindest people, but they were busy and stressed about something else, so they didn't help. And that story stings me to the heart because I did that very thing not that long ago. I was at a train station and somebody was vomiting and I was on my way somewhere and I hopped on and I left the person. And, and to this day, it like haunts me as something that I ask God for forgiveness for. Because it is so easy for us when we are not taking care of ourselves, right, to be blind then to the needs of others. And when you're empty, you cannot give. And so... That's why Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? He says, love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and your mind, all your strength. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But that means we, also, we have to love ourselves well to be able to love others well. And so whether that means saying, hey, asking for help and saying, hey, I'm not okay. I'm going to take a day. You, can you take care of this for me? I'm going to go over there and have a cup of tea or have a nap or go have a mental health day or you know whatever it is to ask for help and to put your hand up and say um, I need to recharge in order to to give back and so that's a very important aspect of being kind to others the other thing is to practice gratitude when we're thankful we become more kind and we've, we've I've preached about gratitude before so I won't dwell on that and all these things that research has discovered, all these things that Dr. Brene Brown is talking about, it's not new stuff. It's been in the Bible for thousands of years. And, and there's so many passages, but let me just read one to you. It's from Colossians chapter 3. And it, and it kind of so well summarizes the points that she talks about in her book and the things that research has discovered. This is Paul, the same guy who was shipwrecked on the island of Malta. He's writing to the church in Colossae in the first century, and he says, don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and to become like him. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace, and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts, and whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. Um, and so Paul is repeating those principles that we've been talking about the importance of being honest right the importance of giving people the benefit of the doubt asking for and accepting help whether that's from God or from others taking care of yourself and practicing gratitude and he repeats this message not only to the church in Ephesus but the church in Corinth uh, in Corinth uh, the church in Rome the church in um, uh, uh, Ephesus and so Coloss- uh, and Colossae. So, in other words, every body of people needs to be reminded of this because the truth is, we're all human beings. None of us are perfect. We all rub, you know, each other wrong, the wrong way sometimes, and that's just, that's human life, right? And so, we need these reminders to to help us recalibrate, to say sorry to each other, to draw closer together, and to um, be united through the Holy Spirit in Jesus. In, in Ephesians, um, this idea of uh, us being united is, is found in this metaphor of um, a tree. This is my attempt to Bible journal. <laughs> um, and so in, in Ephesians, he talks about how if we are rooted in God's love, when we understand experience the grandness of God's love, right, and that is where our rootedness goes, then we can be kind, then we can be humble, then we can be gentle, all these things. And so um, I put around the tree there, the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians chapter 5, that it's only when we are rooted in God's love and we are secure, right? We feel that security that we are who we are because God loves us. And from that place of security, we bear the fruits of the Spirit, which are love and joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness, uh, gentleness and self-control. And so... I'm just going to add one more tip. Oops, sorry. So I've got, ah, go back. Sorry, Ben, I've messed it up. (laughs) I'll I'll leave it alone. But just to review, those six tips of being honest with others, ourselves, and with God, giving people the benefit of doubt, asking for and accepting help, taking care of ourselves, practicing gratitude, and spending time with Jesus, and experiencing and understanding that love of God, which then gives us those deep roots, right? Because let's face it. Our love is, our hearts are, are limited and, and very small sometimes. There are days when I wake up and I just think, I hate everybody. <laughs> like, and I sometimes say it out loud. I just turn to the and I say, I just hate everybody. I just wake up grumpy sometimes. And, and, and that's when I know I really need to go and ask God for help. Because <laughs> it's only through God's grace and through God's love, right, that he fills me so that I can love my children, children, excuse me, so I can love my husband, so I can love my church, so I can love my neighbors, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the cars that cut me off, right? So it's only because of God's deep love, right? His unlimited ocean of love. And when we are actually plugging into that through prayer, through Bible study, through Bible reading, through, right, learning about him, talking about him, connecting with him, that we are then able to draw like the, like the trees do, right? They draw the minerals and water from the ground, and it goes and nourishes the tree so that the tree can bear fruit, which then nourish others. 
And so I want to invite you today that if you're feeling a bit dry and a bit empty, right, and a bit over everything, right, to draw from the love of God, to go and just take some time out with Him and through that experience to find then the strength and the renewal of our mind and spirits so that we can truly be kind to those around us. And through that experience, may we become channels of kindness and may it start um, a whole chain effect, um, chain reaction here in Melbourne of kindness. You know, Gander is now known all over the world. They have got a musical, you know, um, because they were kind. Imagine what could happen if Melbourne City Avenue's church were known for our kindness. We wouldn't be able to keep the seats empty. We wouldn't be able to close the doors um, because people would flow in to experience the love of God here. So that is my prayer for all of us today. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love that has no limit. Help us to understand it, experience it, and learn it so that we can be channels of your love and your peace and healing for the world so that we can be that um, channel of kindness that brings along, brings about that um, chain reaction, that contagion that really brings about goodwill um, here on earth. And I pray, Father, for rain as well. Father, we, we pray for rain for Australia, for especially for Queensland and for New South Wales. Um, we pray for everyone who's affected by the fires and the drought that... Um, your mercy would, would come to them in, in a real and tangible way. Um, and Father, we pray for our spirits that need rain, that need your Holy Spirit to come and, and refresh us and to give us new life. And we pray, Father, that for those of us who may be hurting, um, for those of us who may be um, going through difficult times, that we would experience that resurrection that you promised now. Um, to be refreshed in body, mind, and soul um, through really wading in the ocean of your love, Father, to, to experience that again. And we pray for those who may be traveling um, between now and the new year, that you keep us safe. And, Father, that um, we'll be able to share stories of your kindness and of others' kindness to us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.